This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. Hello, everybody. This week, I had the opportunity to do an ad swap. This week, I want to tell you about Compelled, hosted by Paul Hastings. Compelled takes incredible stories of what God is doing in people's lives, combines them with professional sound effects and music, and turns them into an engaging and faith-building audio experience. Travel deep into the jungles of the Philippines with a Christian missionary who was kidnapped by terrorists and held hostage for a year. Hear the testimony of a mother who was falsely accused of murder and sentenced to life in prison, but still clung to her faith. Feel the burning explosion when a jetliner slams into the Pentagon, just yards away from an army officer who is instantly engulfed in flames and confronted with eternity. Every story is true, vivid, and told by the person who lived it and saw God work through it. Listen now to Compelled wherever you find podcasts or by visiting compelledpodcast.com. This episode is part of a long series exploring how the rise of communism in Russia impacted the American Christian church. This episode can stand on its own, but when you're done, go back and start at the beginning of season three. In the 1600s, All kinds of people were in forced labor in what would become the United States. This could be anything from poor whites who paid their way to the country by agreeing to indentured servitude to Africans transported across the Atlantic as slaves. It may seem strange for an era like this to be the subject of dispute over whether or not the United States is a Christian nation. Because, first it wasn't yet a nation. It was a series of colonies. But our discussion of the religious nature of this country often starts before 1776, when people point to the Pilgrims and the Puritans, despite the fact that they were not even close to the only people to arrive here, or the first. Nor did this group start the country or write the Declaration or the Constitution. Look at paintings from 1776 and you know what you don't see? Pilgrims. That's one reason why it's a little strange that we hold up this era of history. Another is that it doesn't look great to lay claim to an era when an unspeakable number of people were in bondage. Worldwide, one third of all people were in some form of bondage. And we want to call that Christianity at work? Still, some of the laws of this era do reflect Christianity, just not in the way we might like today. In 1705, the colony of Virginia established the Virginia Law Codes that favored white servants over black. White servants could now sue their master if they were treated harshly. Black slaves could not. White servants could not be held if they were 24 or older. Blacks had no such law. Anyone who could not prove that he or she was a Christian before they came here could be held as a slave in Virginia, even if they converted. Really, 
it was based on their religion. It essentially excluded Africans who had little or no access to the gospel at the time. We'll get into that in season four. Any property owned by slaves was divvied up by church wardens. People of color could not own white Christians. Any minister seen to marry a black person and a white one could be fined 10,000 pounds of tobacco, an insanely high price. I mean, this is terrible stuff. The history of the United States, even before it was a country, is riddled with upsetting stories, followed by more after the revolution. Poor treatment of Native Alaskans, Japanese citizens, Native Americans, red lining of black neighborhoods, stark income inequality. When we tie our land to our faith as the Virginia slave codes did, it gets even worse. Then, Christianity is seen as partially responsible, even a justification for unspeakable acts. I grew up with a sense of American exceptionalism. At night, I listened to Christian radio as I tried to go to sleep. The idea that this is a Christian nation was there all the time, spread by pastors and talk shows. To question that assumption was seen as questioning the Bible itself, despite the fact that the United States is not in the Bible. For many of us, when we learn about dark hours in American history, we question our faith because our religion has been tied to the Stars and Stripes. And the Stars and Stripes are not always doing righteous deeds. What do we do when the interwoven fabric of Christian America starts to unravel? You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause in the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Darren, and this is Truce. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. There have been attempts to create a union between the United States and Christianity since before the country was founded, like with the Virginia Slave Codes. But that union has always been uneasy. As I demonstrated earlier this season, the core eight founding fathers, Jefferson, Madison, Hamilton, Washington, Franklin, Morris, those guys were neither deists nor Christians. They were in the middle, believing what Professor Greg Fraser calls theistic rationalism. To recap, it's really simple. Deists believe that God set the world in motion and then walked away. Christians believe that God created the world, set it in motion, and sent his son to die for sinners. 
The core eight founders were somewhere in the middle. Essentially, they all believed that God created the world, set it in motion, remains active, but that Jesus is not God's son. You can see this clearly demonstrated in the Jefferson Bible, Thomas Jefferson's own Bible version that he created. He cut out all references to the miraculous from the good book and left the bits about morality. You can still buy copies of it today. The Jefferson Bible is a sign of a man who saw the value of scripture, just not all of it. They used religion to their advantage to teach morals to people. That may seem dark and sinister, but if you were to go and start a society today, you'd want the same thing. Civilizations need morality. Religion can do that. Napoleon Bonaparte would do something similar a few years later in France. He said, The idea of God is very useful. To maintain good order, to keep men in the path of virtue, and to keep them from crime. He himself was a great example. At various times in his life, he pretended to be an atheist, a Catholic, and a Muslim, depending on where he was and what he wanted to accomplish. A spiritual chameleon who didn't believe in God, but didn't mind using him when it suited his business. There are references to God in our founding documents, but that God is vague. What scholars and the Supreme Court would later deem ceremonial deism. Even though the government did not establish its own religion, they decided they could use the idea of God in ceremonial terms. Like when swearing in witnesses during a trial or opening sessions of Congress. But the God of the Bible is not vague. We're told that by Jesus who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's John 14, 6. Jesus said he is the way, which is, you know, not a vague idea. It's hard to chart the realities of Christian America. There are examples of people wanting this country to be Christian. And there are examples of people who did not. In the 1810s and 1820s, some Christians pressed the Postal Service to stop mail delivery on Sundays. You know, have the U.S. government keep the day of rest. Other groups, like the Baptists, didn't want the government to enforce Sabbath laws. That's one reason why Jefferson wrote his famous letter about the wall of separation between church and state to a Baptist association because the Baptists liked separation. While the federal government couldn't establish a church, some states still did. The last one stopped when Massachusetts dropped direct support for the Congregationalist Church in 1833. 1833. By the 1870s, most Protestants thought of the U.S. as a Christian nation. At the same time, they were actively trying to keep Catholics out and Reconstruction and murder Native Americans. So there's that. Some evidence for and some evidence against. Consider the Treaty of Tripoli of 1797, several years after the Union was created. I could do a whole series on this, but we're wrapping up the season, so I'll make it quick. In the late 1700s, the United States' oceanic trade was 
hampered by Barbary pirates. Especially those from Muslim Algiers, Tripoli, and Tunis in North Africa. Britain and France paid protection money to these lawless states. The United States, along with Britain and France, was seen by the Muslims on the Barbary coast as a Christian nation. Again, these foreign Muslims saw us as a Christian nation. Of course, the struggle between Christians and Muslims was not new. The sting of the Crusades was still felt on both sides. We needed a treaty to keep our shipping operations open and safe from pirates. Along came the Treaty of Tripoli, which would probably never be brought up in discussion these days if not for this infamous passage from Article 11. By the way, this is the whole of the article, in case you think I'm taking this out of context. As the government of the United States of America is not founded in any sense on the Christian religion, as it has in itself no character of enmity against the laws, religion, or tranquility of Muslimen, which means Muslims, and as the said states have never entered into any war or act of hostility against any Mohammedan nation, it is declared by the parties that no pretext arising from religious opinions shall ever produce an interruption of the harmony existing between the two countries. This treaty passed through Congress with unanimous support, signed by President John Adams. They signed off on a strong statement, again, that the government of the United States of America is not founded in any sense on the Christian religion. It's worth noting that the treaty's purpose was not to set in stone the religious beliefs of the nation. This article was really about making sure the two countries couldn't dissolve their agreement because of religious differences. But still, it does say that the country is not founded on the Christian religion. And that ain't nothing. Signed by a founding father and agreed to by the entire Congress. So, according to the treaty writer, President John Adams, and the Congress, this is not a Christian nation. But that same President John Adams wrote a proclamation calling for a national day of prayer, fasting, and humiliation in 1798, one year after the famous treaty. Are you confused yet? Yeah, so am I. At one moment, we're a Christian nation, and the next... We're not. We're endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, as long as we're white and male, and we're not a Christian nation according to the Treaty of Tripoli. How do we reconcile this? The best I've been able to come up with is this. We like the idea of the U.S. as a Christian nation when it suits us. When it doesn't, we toss it aside. We like it when it comes to ceremony and claiming that this land is like us, but we don't like it when our country messes up, soiling the name of Jesus because, I don't know, we wanted to overthrow the government of Guatemala or import cheap raw materials from Africa and South America. It's an interesting debate and we can have it. But in my mind, the better question is not, is this a Christian nation, but what do we hope to gain by calling ourselves a Christian nation. What does that distinction get us? That depends on the person asking the question. 
The founders used religion to instill morality in the people. Some of us mix religion with our country for a feeling of continued heritage. These are my kin, and our faith is part of this larger story. The drawbacks are many. Now, I may sound like a broken record, but it's the end of the season, so here we go. When we tie the United States government to Christianity, the actions of the United States then impact how people see Christianity. If the United States is benevolent, you know, like gives toys to kids and builds schools as a friend of mine did in the military, then that reflects well on Christianity. But if the United States hands out bootleg VHS copies of the movie Rambo and paper copies of the Quran to rebels in Afghanistan, it looks bad. What business does the quote-unquote Christian U.S. government have in handing out Qurans or pirating an American film to encourage rebels who would soon turn on us? That is the mystery of the United States. It is a nation that has done both exceptional things and many unspeakable cruelties. How do we reconcile that? How is it that some Christians look at our history and see a Christian nation and others don't? In all of this research and all these hours of editing, interviewing, writing, and thinking, I may have figured out a way to think of this, to make some sense of this mess. We Christians look and think so differently from each other because we have two fundamentally different ideas of Jesus. Two contrasting ideas of who he is and what he wants of us. This is probably a bit reductionist, but I think it's a valuable framework. Okay, two ideas about Jesus. One is the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount. He tells his followers to turn the other cheek, give away your riches and follow him, take up your cross, love your neighbors, love your enemies. This is one idea of Jesus, kind of a radical peacemaker, calls out the religious leaders, lets himself get humiliated, and is constantly going off to pray by himself. The second popular view of Jesus is less humble servant and more economic savior, one who guarantees that you will prosper in terms of wealth and safety. I'll call this the economic Jesus. Here's the logic. If God wills that you will be wealthy and safe, anything that challenges your wealth or safety must be evil. You have to fight to keep your status because wealth and safety is how God expresses his approval. This may seem far-fetched, but you hear this in some of our witticisms, like the will of God is the safest place to be, despite countless stories in the Bible of people being shipwrecked, beaten, or murdered while in the will of God. This assumed guarantee of wealth and safety is everywhere in our modern church. The first Jesus I mentioned doesn't match up with our history as a country. I mean, it, it just doesn't work. Why did the United States oust the democratically elected leader of Guatemala? Why did it take so long to address the water crisis in Flint, Michigan? How have people of color been so long ignored? Why does it take celebrity scandal to alert us to sexual harassment of women? The idea of this as a Christian nation doesn't work if your idea of Jesus is that of a suffering savior who gave his life. 
the second Jesus, the economic Jesus, lines up with our history completely. If we're supposed to guard our safety and wealth, then whatever we have to do to protect those things lines up with our theology. Manifest destiny? Check. That was the settlers claiming the land that God set aside for them at the expense of the natives. Using forced labor to get uranium out of the Congo in World War II? Justified because we had to build the atomic bomb. In the mid-1700s, the most popular evangelist in the world, George Whitfield, advocated that slavery be legalized in Georgia because it would make the state economically competitive. That seems ludicrous unless you see Jesus as a driver of economic forces. Then it works. The idea of Christian America jibes with our history if you consider that that evil was used to create prosperity. For some, Christian America doesn't fit our history if you worship a Jesus who lays down his life, advocates for the less fortunate, and spends a lot of time hanging out with prostitutes, the sick, and the forgotten. Christian America does fit our history if we see Jesus as a giver of blessings and a guardian who promises to keep us safe. American exceptionalism fits our history if we see Christians as exceptional instead of as servants. I bring this up for good reason, because there are many Christians, especially young Christians, who see all of this and question their faith. They feel like spiritual nomads with no place to worship. They see people holding Christian signs who storm the nation's capital in a violent mob and wonder how all this fits together. No matter what you believe about this country or our history, you need to know that many, many young people are leaving the faith because of Christian nationalism. Scores of people who may never come back. And we're going to chalk that up to television, social media, and schools, and there is some of that, sure. But the thing that is really driving young people away from our churches is that Christianity is constantly being tied to evil acts. They read about Jesus in the Bible, and they see Christians behaving in a completely different way. The nomads hear us talking about the servant Jesus and see us worshiping the economic one. So what are we supposed to do now? If you're one of those spiritual nomads who feels alien in your church, looking for sense in all this, I think there's a lot of hope here. I thoroughly believe that if we want to turn the ship of the American church, the change will come from inside the church. Right now, there's a lot of anger and bitterness in our congregations. I mean, we're frustrated at each other. We're getting our news from different places and being told that the other side is the enemy. But the truth, whether we like it or not, is that we are all one church. We are brothers and sisters, not enemies. Let's reframe what we think of those people. Whoever you think is the wicked other right now. Let's think of those people as victims. Not to let everyone off the hook or be sappy, but if we really think about the events of the last few years, if we're honest, we'll see that we are all victims of this era. That's important. Because I think we're looking around for someone to blame for this time of division. And yes, we have an enemy in Satan. 
But if we look hard, we're going to see that we Americans are all victims. Let me illustrate this with a story about a communist. Again, I am not a communist, but I think we can learn from his example. There was a screenwriter in the early and mid-1900s named Dalton Trumbo. Trumbo's most famous screenplays are Roman Holiday and Spartacus. Those were difficult times to be a screenwriter. He lived through the quote-unquote golden age of cinema, where you signed a contract with a studio and then they controlled everything about your life. From your look to which parts you played down to your name. Times gradually changed, but the film world was still largely an industry of haves and have-nots. Trumbo and his friends, like many Americans, joined the Communist Party in hopes of bringing equality to the world. But in 1947, the landscape got dark. Dalton Trumbo, along with many other crew and cast members in Hollywood, from John Wayne to Cecil B. DeMille, got caught up in investigations by the House Un-American Activities Committee. The goal of the committee was to root out suspected communists from all areas of public life. Cecil B. DeMille and John Wayne went on the offensive, joining the collective madness of the era and rooting out assumed Russian influence. Trumbo was a communist. That can't be debated. But remember that being a communist was not illegal. Americans, after all, have the freedoms of assembly and speech. Yet, Trumbo was blacklisted and served prison time for contempt. Having his name on the blacklist meant that he and many others in the United States could not find work. They lost friends and family who refused to even talk with a suspected communist. He couldn't even write in Hollywood under his own name. So, he found ways around that, even winning an Academy Award under a pseudonym. He couldn't go on stage to accept the award, but he won. Trumbo had many reasons to be angry at his fellow Americans. He'd gone from the height of his career to barely getting by. All of this for his beliefs. Beliefs I don't agree with, but he did have the legal right to hold them. His story is just one of many. Others ended in divorces, bankruptcy, even suicide. The lives of Americans were destroyed. And for what? Because a collective madness seized us. That madness has another name, by the way. Fear. In 1970, years after the end of the debacle, and after he regained his career and McCarthyism was resigned to the dustbin of history, Trumbo accepted the Laurel Award from the Screenwriters Guild. Here is an excerpt from his acceptance speech. The blacklist was a time of evil, and no one on either side who survived it came through untouched by evil. Caught in a situation that had passed beyond the control of mere individuals, each person reacted as his nature, his needs, his convictions, and his particular circumstances compelled him to. There was bad faith and good, honesty and dishonesty, courage and cowardice, selflessness and opportunism, wisdom and stupidity, good and bad on both sides. When you who are in your 40s or younger look back with curiosity on that dark time, as I think you occasionally should, 
it would be no good to search for villains or heroes or saints or devils because there were none. There were only victims. Some suffered less than others. Some grew and some diminished, but in the final tally, we were all victims. Because almost without exception, each of us felt compelled to say things he did not want to say, to do things that he did not want to do, to deliver and receive wounds he truly did not want to exchange. That is why none of us, right, left, or center, emerged from that long nightmare without sin. I think the same can be said about our current era in the American church. It doesn't do us good to look for villains. It's much better for us to think of all of us as victims. We're victims of rhetoric, bad reporting in the media, corruption at the highest levels. But deeper than that, we're all victims of the work of the devil who wants to divide us. I think about the example of Jesus, that suffering servant who died for our sins. He was up there on the cross, actively being crucified in what must have been unimaginable pain. And what did he say about the men who did this to him? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Jesus didn't see his murderers as the enemy, but as victims of a lie. Not to compare Jesus and Dalton Trumbo. They were very different, obviously. But the sentiment is important. If we're going to make a difference in our churches, we need to be like Jesus and see that those who disagree with us, who whip up anger and use rage to protect their pocketbooks and safety, are victims of a collective disease. They are acting out of fear. They don't feel safe. They think the people they love, you and me, are going to slide into evil. Many are convinced that the communists and socialists we've been talking about this season are coming for them. The very thing they put their hopes in, the United States, fails them from time to time when it doesn't live up to their economic Jesus. So, like any of us, they react in fear. Hopefully, that understanding breeds compassion in us. That we are caught up in some social anxiety together that causes us to tear each other down. If we treat each other with compassion, we'll go a lot further. Finally, it's important to know that many of the people who make our churches difficult to attend probably don't know anyone who isn't just like them. We really do live in echo chambers. We talk to people who agree with us. We listen to media outlets that agree with our assumptions of the world. Social media serves us articles and videos that align with our view because they know we'll click on them and they'll get ad money. We're in a cold war of our own. Between competing ideologies that push us further and further into the simple extremes, keeping us from the middle where we'd have to think, debate, and pray. Understand that you may be the first person who thinks like you that some of these people will ever meet, and vice versa. And if you're a parent whose kids have wandered into scary, radical ideas, I'd encourage the same. Remember the words of Jesus when they lash out at you or say hurtful things. If he can say, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do, 
so can you. Regardless of what you believe about the relationship of the Christian Church to the United States of America, react in this moment with compassion. In the 1700s, one-third of all humans in the world were in some form of bondage. One-third. Remember that but for the grace of God, all of us would remain in spiritual bondage. And right now, most of us are in bondage to fear. Don't look for villains. Look for victims. If you're angry and afraid, chances are your perceived enemies are too. We're at the tail end of season three, and it has been a lot of fun to make these stories. We've talked about everything from whether or not the United States is a Christian nation to if empire is okay, where our monuments to Christian America come from and how they impact our witness. We even discussed the history of the Russian Christian church. In the coming weeks, I'll be ending this series with several weekly mini episodes that highlight themes from the season. God willing, right after that, I'll be launching season four. It features episodes with interesting guests like Caitlin Shess, Jamar Tisby, and Adam Hochschild. We'll be discussing how Christians were on all sides of the slavery debate, how pyramid schemes and Christianity got wrapped up in the self-help movement, can Christians get involved in politics, and more. It'll be a grab bag of subjects while I prepare for season five. God willing, season five will be a study on the rise, fall, and rise of Christian fundamentalism through the Scopes Monkey Trial. I'm already working on it, and it's fascinating stuff so far. Subscribe in your podcasting app so you get every new episode as it's released. And for the last bit of business stuff, I'm enlisting your help in this show. There is nothing like this in the market, and the audience is really pretty small. My goal for 2021 is to find a way to make this show sustainable. Right now, I'm getting up at 5.40 a.m. and working until 5.30 at night between my day job and running this project. Long hours, often six days a week. A guy can only keep that going for so long on his own. Together, we can send a message that Christian media can be great. It doesn't have to pander to the lowest common denominator. It can be inspiring, challenging, and rooted in history. Here is how you can help. Do you write for a blog, a newspaper, or a magazine? Then please write an article about truce. Do you have a podcast? Then have me on your show or run one of my existing episodes on your feed. Do you operate a family text thread, a church newsletter, or a prayer chain? Then send out a link so more people can know about truce. Do you have a favorite podcast? Then send out an episode of Truce and encourage them to have me on. If you're a whiz at social media, start a Truce discussion group. Ministry doesn't have to be about numbers. But at our current rate of giving per listener, I need to increase the audience by 15 times in order to make this my full-time job, which would mean more episodes for you, better research, and even I could go on the road to record stories. Now, that may seem crazy, but... I believe we can do it together. Special thanks to Jerry Dugan of the Beyond the Rut podcast for loaning me his voice. Thanks also to Nick Starin for his help throughout the season as my sounding board. 
I'm also indebted to my friend Roy Browning, who is a speaker and runs JMC Brands out of Ohio, who is the webmaster for the show and has believed in this project since the beginning. Thanks so much for listening. God willing, we'll talk again soon. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce.